if you went away and they put me in charge today as a CEO, I'd make the company better quickly. And I get all the executives together and say, I don't know anything about it. I don't know what you do. So I depend on you. My job as a leader is not necessarily to know the subject matter. It's to enable the team and equip and enable them, remove obstacles, and, and basically do what I can to clear the path to victory. Welcome to Ultra Habits. Here, we go under the hood with our guests to unpack the minutiae and to understand what processes and systems they engage or research that result in ultra-enhanced living. Howdy folks, it's RJ Singh here from Ultra Habits and you are joining us on another week's episode where we have Mike Itore on the show today. Now, Mike is a retired Marine Corps infantry officer and decorated combat leader. He's also served successfully as a C-level executive in a publicly traded professional services firm with annual revenues in excess of $1 billion. Now, over the course of both careers, Mike developed a reputation for being an exceptionally effective mentor and developer of leaders. His firm that he currently runs helps leaders in the business world through the implementation of the lessons that Mike has collected through his long career in the Marine Corps, particularly being in the battlefield. So actually one of his books is about the transference of skills and knowledge and the wisdom in the battlefield to the boardroom. Really interesting read. I highly recommend it. Mike is an author of four books, extremely well-read, a lot of range. We're talking about a guy that has served in multiple combat scenarios through to boardrooms and now works with some of the best leaders in the world to help them become more effective. You're going to love this show. Please leave us a review. As always, rate this podcast. Tell us what's on your mind. Anyways, folks, peace out. I'm out of here. Mike, I want to welcome you to the Ultra Habits Show. It is 5 a.m. here in Melbourne, Australia. And I know we're always working with different time zones. And we finally have come together after a stomach bug on your end and some challenges with my kids on my end. So uh, a very deep welcome to the show, Mike. Uh, thank you so much, RJ. First for the invitation and second for getting up so early. So I, I appreciate it. Um, looking forward to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Getting up early is not a problem. Usually I get up early and do lots of things being... Having a conversation at 5 a.m. though can sometimes be a little difficult, <laughs> but uh, yeah, we're, we're here. We're going to try to make this work. So I was connected with you through our mutual friend, Jeff Harris, who we are a good friend with at Ultra Habits, the U.S. Marine. He's a corporate athlete. He loves to do the physical shit that, you know, I like to do. And he said to me, look, you got to connect with Mike. He, you know, I was on his podcast one of the best podcasts he's ever done, he said. So, you know, I did a bit of research and found out more about you and really thought, given your background, he really add value to the Ultra Habits community. So we're going we're gonna to jump into your, your story. So you're originally, Mike, from, from New York, right? You're actually from the home of General Electric. Is that right? Yeah, yes, absolutely. Schenectady, New York. That's where I was born. My grandfather, Giuseppe Etor, actually worked at General Electric uh, in the early 1900s. That's where he worked. And so, yes, I was, I was born in Schenectady, stayed there until I was nine years old. My dad worked for the government. And then we got, at nine years old, we got transferred to New Jersey. So that's where I, I grew up in New Jersey from 10 until 17, right out of high school. Um, and that's when I joined the Marine Corps the first time. So Schenectady, what an interesting name, first of all. But is that in upstate New York? Yes, it is upstate. Um, and I believe, I, I don't quote me on it, but I think Schenectady is an Indian name, American Indian. It, it, that area was rich in, in Native Americans when the you know the colonists were first there. So there's a there's a valley real close to Schenectady called the Mohawk Valley um, and Mohawk Indians. So um, 
Yeah, it was big area. So yes, connected to New York. Yeah. A lot of people don't realize, but New York has, you know, abundance of like bush and outdoors and like, it's not just New York city, like upstate New York is quite, there's a lot of country and remote areas. In fact, we had Mark Devine, um, ex-US, I'm sorry, uh, Navy SEAL on the show. And he was from upstate New York as well. Spent a lot of time growing up in the bush. Did you spend a lot of time outdoors, Mike? I did, yes. Um, And to your point, uh, you get out of New York City 45 minutes and you're in wilderness. You get out of New York City for two hours driving and you would think you're in Michigan or Wisconsin. I mean, it's wilderness, beautiful area. Most people think of New York City. And uh, I grew similarly in a, in a rural area of New Jersey. Most people say, oh, New Jersey, the Sopranos and all that. I grew up in dairy country. So yes, we, uh, I, we took shotguns to school, believe it or not, uh, and went deer hunting after school. Uh, so big, big hunting, uh, fishing, outdoors. Yes, it was definitely a part of my youth, big time. And so your dad was he tested m16s but like he had a connection to the military like did you know did that proximity to the military drive your desire to get in like well how, how did you determine that you were going to get into the u.s marines because i from what i understand like it was a pretty quick choice like you already knew after high school you were going to go right like you didn't waste any time my mother was in the army too that's where my mom and dad met my mom was in for two years my dad was in for three during the korean war though they did not go to korea and so they met, got married, I believe, in 1953. I was, my sister was born in, in uh, 54. I was born in 56. So, uh, yeah, I think growing up with parents that had been in the military, all my uncles, I had five uncles. My dad was the baby, did not go to World War II, but five of his brothers served in Europe in the Army in World War II. One actually landed on Omaha Beach during Normandy. A lot of my teachers, my dad's friends, you know, we're today here in the States, RJ, it's it's almost hard to find someone that's been in the military. But back then, most adult men, as I were growing up, most had been in the military for whether it was wartime or two years as a draftee or whatever. So it did influence me. There's no doubt about it. And I probably thought I was going into the army uh, but then I met uh, a friend of mine's brother who had been a Marine. He served in Vietnam twice. And I just became intrigued with it. And I went to see the recruiter the first, the day before my senior year of high school. And he gave me some literature and I told him, I'll, I'll be back. And, and I did. I came back. And so I graduated high school on a Wednesday. And the following Monday, I was at Paris Island. Tuesday morning, I wondered what the hell I'd done, you know, but uh, yeah, it was the uh, best decision I've ever made in my life, honestly. I had a, my U.S. Marines moment as well. I, unlike uh, most people that follow this show or unlike myself now, I, I grew up um, in the juvenile detention system and I was looking to the military to try to change my way of life. And my mom was taking me to the the recruitment offices and you know they're all lined up all four of them and i was going to go into the air force but i actually walked into the marines recruitment and i tried to walk out and the the sergeant on duty screamed he's like hey get in here you know i was telling him how i was going to go in the air force he said you don't want to go there and like you know like he pitched me the whole story the badass marine story and i'll never forget like for the next uh, few months like that um recruitment sergeant actively got involved in my life, right? Like he would take us and other kids to events and, you know, go to, you know, Oakland Naval Yard and do all the kinds of things. And they tried really hard. I ultimately went to juvenile hall again. And when I came out, they picked me up. They took me to take my ASVAB and I took my ASVAB, but I didn't graduate high school. My score wasn't high enough to go directly into the Marines without a high school diploma. And ultimately I got back into uh, the kind of detention system, but I always think, you know, like what things could have been, I I think in many ways, although I love corporate um, and I've done very well, that I would have really enjoyed the lifestyle 
uh, the performance orientation and the structure of the military because I really thrive with that level of structure. So yeah, it's a really interesting personal story. Um, and um, yeah, I'll never forget Sergeant Asuncion because he had a lot of impact on my life. So, so move over to your, your commencement in the, um, in the Marine. So what was boot camp like? Like what was, you know, give us that experience. You get there, you're like, oh shit, like I've actually done this. And, you know, the U.S. Marines obviously have a reputation that's different to the other armed forces. How was that experience and why do you feel the U.S. Marines have a different reputation, particularly at boot camp? Most people don't know is, I, you know, I was an athlete. I was a wrestler from third grade all the way through high school. I actually wrestled in college uh, when I left the Marine Corps the first time. And but that said, uh, growing up, while I was a strong kid, very active, I was very overweight. So the first time I went to the recruiter, the Marine recruiter, um, you know, he took me for the physical. I failed the physical. And he said, you know, you got high blood pressure and you're grossly overweight. I can't take you like this. And so that's when I said, I'll be back. How much weight do I have to lose? He said, well, he gave me the number and it was substantial. It was about, I'd say, 65 pounds. And I said, okay, I'll be back after wrestling season. And the day after wrestling season ended, I started working out, you know, with cardio and all of that. Walked back in his office. He didn't recognize me. And, uh, and, and he said, that's you. And so we went back to take the physical. And while I was taking the physical, I noticed people started talking to me, doctors and officers, like, what's your name? I realized very quickly they thought that the recruiter had brought someone else to take my physical for me. And so they realized it's really him. You know, how did you do this and all that? And well, you must really want to be a Marine. And so, yes. So I'm telling you this to set the stage. So boot camp is hard physically um, for most people. It was really hard for me because you know, I, while I was stronger than hell, I, I had no running background whatsoever. And so I was hanging on by a thread in those runs. I just wouldn't quit. I was probably less conditioned cardio-wise than most recruits because now the weight was off me, but uh, yeah, I wasn't getting the best of food. And they determined I needed to lose more weight. So I went to boot camp about 220 six and came out 200 pounds flat but it wasn't strong pounds you know i mean they i was just basically starving and running and you know what it wasn't good training for me when i graduated that's when i got into serious weight training and all that and running and i actually got to love running and and actually went back but boot camp was good i think to answer your question about the marine corps in general I don't know what to tell you. People have asked me this, you know, like, what do they do to you guys? You know, what do they do that makes you love the Marine Corps forever? You know, because some of the other services, and I'm not bashing the other services, the other services admire us for this. I think that this kind of camaraderie, RJ, is probably found in the other services, mostly in special operations units. I think SEALs and special forces paratroopers, submariners, I think they have that same kind of lifelong kinship. But I think right from the start, what the Marine Corps did was they started teaching you Marine Corps history. They taught us about World War One, you know, Bella Wood, Devil Dogs, World War Two, And, you know, and, and very quickly, they re- made you realize that I was bigger. I was part of something much bigger than me. And I had to earn my way into it. And that Semper Fidelis, you know, our motto, always faithful, was very, very real. And so I can't point to a specific day or training session. It just, it becomes you. It just becomes you. And so when I was growing up, when my kids were growing up, we'd be, you know, if they were with me in Home Depot and I would see some old timer with an Eagle Globe and anchor on his arm, I'd reach out and say, hey, Marine, when were you in? My kids would be like, oh my God, this is a half hour at least. You know, we just, we can't walk by each other. If I see somebody with a car with a bumper sticker, Marine Corps, you know, I'll, I'll pull up next to him, beat my horn and give him a salute and all that. And he'll wave back. Don't even know the guy. 
so it's very real. What you're asking for is about is very, very real. It's intangible yet very tangible. Yeah. And, and we're going to unpack that. So, you know, you've spoken um, about the George Losey jacket, right? Like, so the jacket that was kind of passed from, I guess, uh, generation to generation within this particular battalion of a fallen Marine. And, you know, I think you've touched on something very important that I think the U.S. Marines have developed a very strong sense of tradition and rituals within the organization. How do you feel or how do you see that being relevant for people running businesses? Like how can people within their organizations unite and drive the team towards the objective? And how does tradition, rituals, and kind of that atmosphere play a role? Like, and how do you leverage what you've learned in the U.S. Marines to take that into corporate? It's a great question. And I think I've got some cogent answers. I, first of all, uh, I, you know my background. So I was a Marine 24 years and I retired and went into corporate America and uh, didn't know anything about business, but I knew, I knew leadership. I was a good leader, good organizer. And so that really carried me through early on. And very quickly, I realized from a leadership perspective, um, there's almost a one-for-one correlation between leading in the Marine Corps and leading in the business world. So specifically to answer your question, when I coach companies and talk to them, I talk about, I, you know, I ask them to read my book, Trust-Based Leadership, and that covers this stuff, the traditions and all of that. And I tell them, you know, I ask, if they're an existing company, an older company, I ask them, what about hard times? You know, did you go through the dot-com crash? And they have no shortage of stories and anecdotes. You know, you remember, remember the time it was so bad we couldn't pay us, you know, pay the employees for, for two months, but they all hung in there. And I would, I tell them, look, this is your culture. This is your history. So you should celebrate that. If there was someone back then that was an instrumental leader, you should establish an award in his name. And so, yeah, your your more tenured companies, I think the best ones, RJ, do have traditions and culture, heritage, just like the Marine Corps. I think most do. They have awards of people that were in the company 60 years ago. Ascending companies often forget to do that, but they forget that they are, in fact, establishing culture they you know they are in some ways the good old days are right now yeah i think it's about finding the moments that are milestones and not forgetting to recognize them particularly is to your point when you're on the journey when you don't have a lot of history where you may be closer to the startup realm i think that's very important and then immortalizing these stories that then feed into the culture and the narrative of people that are onboarded and, and uh, kind of unite people around a cause. I mean, I think if you look around and look at the organizations that are successful, people view the objective as a real deep mission, not just a job, right? And I think that's a unique competitive advantage uh, in terms of, you know, uh, how a company competes. So going back to your early days in the Marines, so you go through boot camp, you're not necessarily like a stellar person when it comes to fitness, but ultimately you do become a 20 year old drill instructor, like the youngest in but the company or the Marines. Like, how did that happen? Well, it was a perfect storm. Um, first of all, I, I embraced physical exercise, physical training as a passion to give you some perspective on our final physical fitness tests uh, of probably Uh, 250 recruits, I was the very last one to cross the finish line. It was an individual run. Uh, Very last one uh, with seconds to spare to the cutoff. Truth be known, I'm not quite sure I made it. I think they, they, there's a possibility they looked at me and said, this kid is willing to run to the death and we can work with that. And I graduated boot camp. I went home. And the first morning I woke up 
at home as a Marine, I went out to run. And from that point forward, I just embraced physical exercise. And, you know, I was young, so I was 18 at the time, newly 18. So my body was cooperating. It was responding. You know, you got those natural steroids in your body. And so I was lifting. And I have good genetics for, for weight training. So I, I, got, I got big, strong, and fast uh, pretty quickly. So uh, kind of unrecognizable from a physical fitness standpoint from just two years earlier. Um, and so I embraced it and I, I loved it. And so I served, I was in a unit that had several former drill instructors and higher ranking guys. And, and I said, you know, I'd like to do that someday. And one of them said, you know, there's a shortage of drill instructors right now. Uh, some, some Marines don't want to do it because it's very difficult. Um, and you're supposed to be 21. Most of them are 26, 27, 28 or more, but you can get a waiver for the 21. And he was an administrative Marine that had just come from the drill field. So they put my paperwork in, my officers signed it. And lo and behold, several weeks later, I had orders to DI school at San Diego. And uh, I was the baby of the class was the best military school I ever went to. Completely professional, demanding, physically tough. Uh, but yeah, I graduated and uh, and went out to my first platoon. And yes, after I joined that platoon about halfway through their training. And when they graduated, I was still 20 years old. So the drill instructors went out to a big party at a bar, a local drill instructor hangout. And I was too young to get in. I was too young. So they had to sneak me into the party. You know, it was unheard of a drill instructor, not old enough to drink. Um, and so, yeah, it was all good. But, you know, perfect storm of getting me there. Uh, great mentors while I got there. And I just felt a strong um, obligation to, to earn the privilege that had been granted to me. So, like, from the outside looking in, the... You know, we see movies and we hear stories like it appears the objective of a drill instructor is to bust everyone's ass. Right. But I'm sure you guys have your remit internally. You understand there's science behind what you're trying to do. What's the perspective of the drill instructor day to day at work? What are you trying to do? Well, I think in a nutshell, what we're trying to do is screen the recruits and to identify those who are unsuitable or untrainable or unadaptable for whatever reason. Uh, some of them come in and they're just not physically ever going to be there. Others, um, you know, are loners, not used to taking orders, will never get used to taking orders. Uh, and so, you know, we put them in an environment, shave their heads. Everybody looks the same. Doesn't matter if you're a rich kid, poor kid, black, white, you are all the same. And they're treated harshly. I mean, there's no physical abuse, punching or anything like that. Now, that said, during my era in the mid 70s on the drill field, would we wear them out physically? Absolutely. Would we get them tired? A absolutely. And we were trying to identify the weak or unwilling um, and we would deal with them accordingly physical exercise as you know was a great way to identify recruits that had never pushed themselves a lot of them were non-athletes uh, most of them i think were non-athletes maybe half or more than 50 percent um, and so they you know that lactic acid sometimes that's the first time in their life they ever felt it and and sadly for them they felt it with a drill instructor looming over them. You know? so there's no option to quit. So it was good. But I think, you know, we look at the recruits as something very precious and we safeguard them, but we're harder than hell on them. And we want to make sure that, that they earn it. It's an interesting uh, phenomenon, right? Because I'm sure there were a lot of people that were athletically inclined that didn't necessarily have the mindset or vice versa. Like, people that you would be like, These, this guy's not going to make it, but they've got a capacity for inner strength and leadership. I know one of your stories, uh, a young kid came to your company. I think he was a dropout everywhere else. And during battle or a shootout or something, he went and saved. he pulled a guy out of 
fire. I think the guy ultimately died, but you guys put him up for a war. Now, no one saw that hidden capability. And I guess when you're a drill instructor, you're mindful of all this stuff. So from a negative perspective, what are some of the red flags that this person may not have the capacity to work with a team or the mindset? And conversely, what are some of the signs that this person may be a hidden gem? You just can't see it. Start with the latter. You, you know, you can look, even as a drill instructor, you can look at some recruits and within two days, you'll recognize a couple of them that just have it. They just have it. You could probably take them right now and put them out in the fleet Marine force and they'd catch on very quickly. So in some ways they don't need boot camp. They just have a presence about them. Um, that that is, is rare it's it's not it's not common uh the vast majority of them the, the big context rj is looking back at boot when you're out of boot camp even two years later you look back and some of the things which seem so hard or excruciatingly painful are laughable just two years later but what makes it so hard is first of all, you're conditioned to think that it's going to be really hard. And it is, it is the hardest thing most people ever do in their life. You know, they're 17. Particularly at 18. Yes, yeah, 17, 18, and 19. I met a guy who uh, was a Marine with me. I didn't go to boot camp with him. He told me he thought boot camp was relatively easy. And I said, okay, talk to me. He said, well, I had been in the Arizona juvenile delinquent system since I was like 10 years old. And they ran it like boot camp every day, you know, but we had to fight for our lives and, you know, food and all of that. And so he said, boot camp was kind of easy for me compared to where I'd been. So it was it was all relative. It's a great institution, even today. I mean, a lot has changed, but one thing is for certain, you take these soft kids, these millennials and Gen Zs, and you put them through boot camp, and a year and a half later, many of them were on patrols in Afghanistan and Iraq. Two or three years after, after high school, some of them are actually leading combat patrols and they're a corporal or a sergeant, and they're it. Like, they are out there with 12, 15, 20 Marines, and they're the commanding officer for all intents and purposes. Most of their peers back home haven't even come close to that level of responsibility yet. Not even close. Do you think that societal pressures or societal uh, influences have impacted the Marines in a positive or negative way, obviously the Marines operate within a social construct of the United States. Yeah. And what's happening in everyday United States will impact the U S Marines. Like, have you seen a shift for the better or worse? Here's my, my thoughts on this. I'll caveat it up front where I think the, the Marine Corps is much different. You know, I retired almost 25 years ago. So the, the Marine Corps is different in some ways. It's good. In some ways, not so good with the recruits. So the recruits, by and large, are more educated and their IQs, their raw IQ scores are much higher than the 60s, 70s, and parts of the 80s, you know, when the emphasis was on getting warm bodies. We need bodies, you know. These kids come in, they all know how to use computers, they're tech savvy, they're all gamers and all of that stuff. Now that said, these smart Smarter than ever, privates and PFCs, they still make the same PFC mistakes of 40 years ago. They go out in town and they get in trouble. They do boneheaded things. Some of the societal things that they bring with them that aren't so good is that, and I'm generalizing here, they've been raised in a society where personal accountability largely is not found. You know, we make a lot of excuses in society today. And especially for our children. Now, it's not you, Johnny. It was the teacher that gave you a bad grade. And so they have to undo that because when they get in the Marine Corps, some things are still very old fashioned. I say rightly so. In other words, if you're a Marine and you violate the rules, you are getting in trouble. It's just that simple. If you use drugs, 
and you're found out out of your analysis, you are going to be in trouble and probably not long for the Marine Corps. And it doesn't care if your mommy or your pastor or your teacher writes a note for you. You're not getting out of it, you know. And I think some younger recruits, newer Marines, have a difficult time with that early on. I think early on, just all of a sudden, in their first dealings with non-negotiable accountability rules, guidelines, policies, procedures, I think that's new to a lot of them. Now, I also think they adapt well, um, but some of them can't. I think some of them come in expecting the Marine Corps to adapt to them, and and there's they're going to have problems. Those those fellows are going to have problems. Yeah, it's an uh, it's a question that I, I I like to kind of ask people that were in the military because I always get really interesting uh, commentary, and I take that on board. I think even for me, I'm Gen Y, I'm forty, and you know we can see subtle differences between me or my generation, Gen X, and even the younger kids coming through. And I do mentor younger kids that are mo- more on the uh, the current generation. And one of the things uh, that we tend to focus on is that kind of extreme ownership, because I think we tend to outsource and export our sense of control more than we should. And I don't think people realize it's actually at your detriment. Like I'd rather err on the side of over accountability because it's a very slippery slope once you start to outsource that control. And before, you know, the message is before you start to blame in your environment, strengthen yourself. Like if you strengthen yourself, you can shift your environment, but don't sit there and pontificate without strengthening yourself. Right. Like I think that's the problem. Yes. And I will say this RJ, because I always try and translate it uh, back to the business world. You know, I, I cover this fairly hard because you know, I'm an old guy now. I'm 65 years old. And I used to, when I went in the Marine Corps, the old timers who had been in World War II, Korea and Vietnam, three wars, some of these guys, and they were legit old core, old timers, highly respected. They called my group of recruits, they called us the Pepsi generation. There was, you know, a big, you probably saw the ads, it's the Pepsi generation. But they called us the Pepsi generation. We're not worth a shit, you know, and, and we did just fine. And I produce, when I talk to companies and clients about leading multi-generation workforces, which they're out there, the younger generation has always been demeaned, scorned, dismissed. And I show them a quote, I put a quote up on on the the slides, and it's bemoaning, these young people have no respect for their elders, they're sloppy, and I'm like, who, and and people are like, yes. And they think it's my quote. And I ask them, who do you think said that? They said, well, you said it. And then I flip it another slide and it's the same quote, but it's God who said it, it was Socrates. So Socrates was bitching about the younger generation 2000 years ago. And so my point is, and I'm sure you'll agree is in every generation, are they different? Yes. But are there still Spartan warriors out there in every generation? Absolutely. Not necessarily in the military sense, but in the business sense, there are still meat eaters out there. And if you grab a hold of them and bring them into your culture in the business world, insist on accountability, train them up, mentor them, you can shape them. I mean, you can shape them big time. And then you have a you have a really an unfair advantage because you've taken the population. And you put them through your own boot camp, so to speak. You, I mean, you you went to Granada, you went to Lebanon, you did various things, and ultimately you went to university during peacetime, and you found a love of business. Like, was that like, did you have an interest in business before that, or was like kind of an oh shit moment? Like, this is this is what I want to do. Looking back, I always had an entrepreneurial flair. So growing up in Schenectady at the time, we would get snowfalls two, three, four feet at a shot. So my mom, at my request, bought me a snow shovel and I would go up and down the street knocking on doors asking if they'd like me to shovel their snow. And I would do it and they would pay me and then it would snow again that night and I'd go knock on the door again and shovel the same sidewalk the next day. Dipping twice. So I was making great money. I, uh, you know, we all worked hard. I picked, as a a young kid, I picked tomatoes in the fields, 50 cents a bushel, hard work. 
out in the sun, 50 cents a bushel, all the tomatoes you could eat. You know, that's what the guy said. And it was fun. I used to trap animals, you know, and, and you know, it's kind of gone out of fashion, but fur was big fashion back then. And so it was where I grew up was very rural. We would trap muskrats, beaver, raccoon, and all of that and sell them for significant money. I mean, as a kid, significant money. I remember one week my dad walked out on the back porch. He was not an outdoorsman and all my critters were there, you know, and he said, what is that? I said, well, that's a muskrat. What was that? That's a raccoon, right? Yes. What's this? And he would say, well, how much do you get? And I said, well, the muskrat's $9. Wow. And he looked and he said, this is like 1972. And he looked and he said, a piece? I said, yes. And I might have had like nine of them laid out there and a raccoon and, and a fox. And he realized he's he's got like $250 sitting on the back porch. I'm not sure he was making $250 a week. Could just see the math roll, the mind rolling like, whoa. Now to do that, I was getting up early in the morning and I was in the woods and swamps at 5 a.m. prior to school, you know, all out there by myself with a flashlight and and a rifle, you know, the 22 rifle to shoot the critters that, you know, you trapped and all of that. So it was great. And so, yes, I, I always had that entrepreneurial flair um, and then even in the Marine Corps, I, I realized I had that, that entrepreneurial flair. And so I had a, a little couple of little side hustles going and all of that, but, uh, I do love business. Um, I do love, uh, the leadership aspect of it. And, and again, the corollary is you take two forces, two military forces, and I put them in opposition to each other. It's not only just it's not always the ones with the better equipment or even the better training. Usually it's the ones with the better leadership uh, throughout the entire unit that prevails. And so I have always been intrigued. I said if it applies in combat, it must apply in business, and it does. The 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 critical factor in a company's long-term success, in my view is the quality of its leadership team. And that's from executives all the way down to the the loading dock foreman, all leaders. So when you got into corporate, you spent 15 years shared services or the IT company, right? Like, did you find it initially to be challenging in terms of the pace and the level of pressure? Like you've come from a combat environment. Like, was that an adjustment for you? I, 24 years as a Marine, the vast majority of it, not in combat, you know, combat combat. And believe it or not, sometimes in many cases, peacetime training is much more fast paced and physically demanding than combat. The difference is you're not scared for your life. You know, that you, you really don't have anybody shooting at you. Sometimes peacetime training by design is meant to be more difficult, more physically and mentally taxing. As a whole, the Marine Corps is very fast paced. We don't waste time. We get it's it's oh you're you're very it's very fast. And so the business world, I have found that most companies that are movers and shakers, they they've got a very so it's not slow. It's very fast. In fact, I hired a Marine one time. He was a lieutenant colonel, and he came into my company K Force where I worked. And after about several months, he said this pace that I'm working now is faster than what I ever experienced in the Marine. So for him, he was kind of off balance uh, for most of us. Um, and I think that was specific to what his job was in the Marine Corps. But um, I, I do think, I think one of the answers I'm trying to give the audience here is if, if a unit military or business whatever sports team if you are pushing hard and really trying to go beyond the edge of your perceived limits it's a fast pace it's it's a fast pace you're hustling you know there's 10 hours of work to do in an eight-hour day how do you prioritize it and it brings back the issue rj of leadership leadership knowing okay this is a marathon and some days we have to sprint, but we can't expect people to do sprints 
hundred days in a row, we're going to break people. And out in the business world, people can quit. People can say, I love you guys. I just never see my children. I'm, I'm going to another company. It always comes back to, it always comes back to leadership in my view. What is the crux of the leadership style within the U S Marine Corps that you were exposed to that was directly transferable into corporate? What's the essence? Well, let me make a statement first. I, a lot of people had trouble believing this when I was first out. I had Marine buddies I was talking to. They didn't believe it. And the, and the civilians in the business world didn't believe it. But I tell people, I led civilians exactly like I led Marines. And they were like, no. I said, yes. The civilians think that, you know, they watch Rambo movies, and, you know, Full Metal Jacket. And they think that's Marine leadership. It's not. The business people, I mean, the, the Marines, they think of business, They everybody's soft and, you know, goes to the golf tournaments and, yeah, just, you know, total stereotypes. And I tell them my theory is whether they're businessmen or military folks or athletes, they're human beings. And human beings are all, you know, bound by human nature. And human nature has not changed since the caveman days, we become refined, but human nature, shelter, food, self-interest and all, it has not and will not changed. So if you understand human nature and you can shape the motivation and the incentives of people, you can lead well. I was, it was, it was actually, I didn't know anything about business, RJ. I had to learn. My learning curve was steep, but I realized almost immediately that I didn't have to change at all as a leader to succeed in the business world. Not, not at all. I found civilians out here that would have been great Marines. And I also found some that, you know, they, they wouldn't have been so good. I, I know great Marines that would be great businessmen. And I know some, I've seen some that come out and they, it's just not their environment. You know? But leading both. Uh, so I, I am confident enough to, to, to hammer this point home. I honestly believe, I tell the audiences that I train, I, I say, look, I, where's the CEO? Fred, I love you. Thanks for bringing me in. I don't know anything about manufacturing, but I'm going to make a bold statement. If, if you went away and they put me in charge today as a CEO, I'd make the company better quickly. And they're like, whoa, you know, and, some, and they're like, okay, well, tell me why. I said, don't know anything about your factories. Don't know anything about your product. Don't know anything about your industry. But here's what I would do. I would walk in the door and I'd get all the executives together and say, I don't know anything about it. I don't know what you do. So I depend on you. So I'm going to ask you the three tough questions, the three, the three uh, uh, big questions right off the bat. And I want you to come with answers next week. I want you to tell me based on your knowledge of the company and the operations, what should we start doing? What should we stop doing? And what should we do differently? And I have found if you ask any team that, the team members know, then they bring it back and we should stop doing this. I say, okay, fellas, I don't have any expertise in this. What do you all think? Yeah, we really should stop doing that. But if we stop it, here's what's going to happen. And so that my role as a leader is saying, okay, so what can I do to help us stop this, start it, or do differently? So my job as a leader is not necessarily to know the subject matter, it's to enable the team and equip and enable them, remove obstacles, and, and basically do what I can to clear the path to victory. Am I ever going to know as much about manufacturing and those machines and the verticals and the product margins? No, that's not. I never knew any of that. And so I was in charge, RJ, to prove my point. I was in charge of almost all of the back office, the non-sales support organizations for a billion dollar plus company, IT, human resources, marketing, purchasing, real estate, Manila, Philippines, or you know, shared services. I had no training, no expertise in any of that stuff. None. And I found it was a blessing because I had no preconceived notions. I just asked common sense questions and often didn't get common sense answers. 
And now, did I learn along the way? Yes, of course I did. I learned more of the subject matter, but I was, you know, in charge of an IT department with a $45 million budget, 180 people in it. Did I learn more about technology? Yes, I learned how to be a technology leader. Was I ever going to sit in someone's cube and help him write code? Absolutely not. Leadership is a learned skill. And if you prove adept at it, it's a highly marketable skill as well. You're facilitating, right? You're asking the questions, you're guiding, you're shepherding. I, I agree. And I take that on board. I think the audience will really take that on board. So we'll, we'll pivot the, the conversation, the leadership at home. So I know a lot of what you do is around legacy, future generations, you know, great grandchildren. And, you know, I've heard uh, you talk about that. I know you're a fan of Carnegie. You know, he said a man that dies rich dies disgraced in, in, in the sense of what uh, his view is in giving back. And I know um, for you, community, family is very important. And I want to talk about leadership at home. You, one of your interviews, you, it was really funny. You said, you know, you were talking to your son when he was younger and you said to him, look, son, not everything that comes out of my mouth is bullshit. <laughs> and, you know, like we tend to think we have all this insider information and everyone else may listen to us, but, you know, our kids won't, right? Like, so uh, let's talk a little about this. You made this comment. You said, there's time to be mommy and daddy and time to be a mother and father. Explain. Let me give you an, an example. If I, and this didn't happen in real life, but I've seen friends do this and I've given them advice. A friend of mine has a daughter, college age, beautiful woman, attractive, um, engaging. And she has a history of just selecting bad men, you know, men that don't deserve her. And so I tell them, look, when, when she goes through a breakup, this is time for you and your wife to be mommy and daddy. And, and commiserate with her and build her up and go see her and bring her home for the weekend and just, you know, put your arms around her literally and know that mommy and daddy's there. Make her feel good. Once she's out of the darkness, you guys need to have a mother and father discussion with her and walk her through, look, this has happened to you several times. You have got to understand that not everybody deserves you. <clears throat> you need to raise your standards. Now, that mother and father discussion <clears throat> is appropriate, but it's not appropriate during the breakup when she's emotional. And so there's judgment involved to know when to be mommy and when to be daddy. Um, if I have a, a child uh, that's struggling in school, I need to find out if it's a matter of skill or will. Um, nobody was going to make me good at math, RJ. Once we got into algebra, trigonometry, I just couldn't do it. I don't have that chip. And it wasn't a matter of will. I just don't have that chip. I don't have it. Uh, I've been blessed with a lot of talents, math, music, and languages. You know, God just said, eh, not him, you know, going to make him struggle in those areas, you know, but I'm not complaining. And so my parents, you know, we're mommy and daddy, like, you can do it. I know you can do it. And then at some point, I think they realized, you know, based upon what the guidance counselors and this testing show, he's so bright in some areas, but in these, you know, he's just not going to do it. You know, it's just, he's not going to be a math major. He's not going to, he's not going to, he's not going to pass chemistry because he can't get by the math portion of it, you know? So the combination of being the mommy and dad. So what they do, they started steering me toward things that I excelled at, that I really liked doing. But if I failed the test, any test, there was no mommy and daddy. It was like, well, did you study? Not really. That's on you. You know, that's on you. You brought back home a bad report card. So how about you? Uh, how about you stay in the house for the next six weeks? You know, until you get your next midterm report and all of that. You know, and so happy balance, as I've said in that podcast you listen to, it takes judgment, it takes moral courage in parents to know when to be mommy and daddies. And boy, if you get it wrong, uh, you can really damage the child. 
No, I, I, I think that's brilliant insight and brilliant advice, Mike. So we'll land the plane here. Um, before we do, just want to thank you, Mike, for coming on the show and sharing your strength, your wisdom, your knowledge, your insights. Where can our audience learn and find more information about you? Well, before I answer that, I want to uh, thank you and compliment you. I've done many podcasts. I don't think I've ever been on one where the person doing the interview was more prepared than you are. So you've done your homework. That's always a pleasure. You've, you've done your study and your research on that. So good on you. Thank you, Mike. Um, as far as me, I've written four leadership books. Uh, people can go to Amazon, Barnes & Noble. Uh, all all good leadership books, in my opinion. Obviously, I wrote them. My website is fidelisleadership.com. You know, Semper Fidelis, fidelisleadership.com. I do a leadership podcast as well. If you go to the website, Fidelis Leadership, you'll look up in the upper uh, margin and you'll see the link that says podcast. I think I've got about 86 episodes up now and I've been able to interview some really legit heavy hitter leaders. I love it. I learn. I'm not writing notes every time I do it. I get them transcribed and I yellow highlight them. I learn a lot from them. I am a prolific uh, producer of content on social media. I have, I post on LinkedIn is my preferred platform uh, because more, most people there are interested in business, getting jobs, career progression. It's turned into if you and your audience don't notice, LinkedIn has turned into an incredible social media platform for leadership, best practices, things like that. It used to be just, I need a job. I know a guy, you know, it used to be just strictly for jobs. It's turned into a great, probably the best social media platform. So I see world-class subject matter experts on LinkedIn freely sharing advice. And so I do that daily. I have a large following on LinkedIn. So people can go there. I, I connect with anybody, publish some pretty good stuff if I say so myself. And I learn as much there as I as I post. I mean, I am connected to various people and I I wake up and because I've clicked on their articles before, I get something like, oh, yes, this guy. Oh, and, and, you know, I read it. I'm like, man, how do, how do I not know this? You know, 65 years old, I've been around leadership a long time. This guy just in, in a three paragraph post showed me three things I've never even heard of before, but I'm compelled to go ahead and learn about it. You know, and that's basically the ways they can get me. You know, if they re anybody reaches out to me, I always respond. Well, thank you so much, Mike. This is a great way to close out my business day. I'm flattered by the invitation. And the only thing I would ask is that you come on my podcast. <laughs> for sure. For sure, Mike. I'd love to.